welcome to Zero Ambitions. Um, welcome, Patrick. It's great to have you with us here. I think it's uh, brilliant you've agreed to come on the show and talk to us about uh, your time in office and some of the measures and the um, initiatives that the Scottish Government's putting in place. And I think it speaks volumes for the accessibility uh, of politicians here uh, in Scotland. Now, we we know uh, you, Patrick, you're, you're a well-kent figure in, in Scotland, um, but just for a broader English audience, could you perhaps give us just a, a bit of background in terms of, of, of your day job and, and the party that you represent and, and what you've been doing over the last few years here in Scotland? Sure. Uh, well, thanks very much, first of all, for uh, inviting me to, to have a chat with you. Um, I, uh, I've been a member of the Scottish Parliament since 2003 now, so I'm, uh, I'm what they call fully institutionalised. Uh, it's, um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was one of the youngest ones when I was elected, and so I, I can't quite shake uh, uh, from my, my mind the idea that I'm still one of the youngsters, uh, but... Uh, there are now MSPs less than half my age, so I'm, I'm kind of having to uh, 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 come to terms with, with reality on that. But I've been a regional MSP for Glasgow for all of that time. Uh, since 2008, I've been uh, co-leader or equivalent post within the Scottish Green Party. And so, you know, I've, I've been on the, the political landscape, if you like, within Scotland for, yeah. for a while now, uh, always uh, as an opposition party. But the Scottish Parliament's a little bit different from Westminster, where uh, it's it's a little bit less of a winner takes all uh, arrangement. With it's it's not just that there's proportional representation and and a, a more of a, a balance between the different parties. There's only been one session uh, since 1999 when a single party had a majority. For the most part, it's either been a coalition uh, or it's been a minority government with the requirement to cooperate and collaborate across party lines uh, or as in this session uh, you've got a, a, a just about a, a minority government the, the SNP won just below that, that majority mm -hmm. threshold and then they asked us to form a cooperation agreement mm -hmm. so that's brought the Greens into government for the first time which is incredibly exciting it's uh, it, from, a, from a party point of view obviously it's a chance to challenge the idea that Voting green is is just a symbol or a protest. It's it's now yeah. clearly about putting policies into practice, uh, but it's also a, a chance for us to to really uh, turn the dial on on a number of policies. You know, mm. transport, for example, Scotland's emissions have been going up, not down. Uh, you know, underlying economic policy, we've we've already shifted to a, a fairer income tax system, a five band income tax system, so that uh, people earning uh, Low wages get protected, middle wages get protected, and it's high earners who pay a bit more. But obviously, uh, on a whole host of, of fronts in, in relation to the climate agenda, uh, we need to make a lot more progress. I think we've shown ambition, and Scotland has set ambitious targets, and at first, we even met them. Uh, but the last couple of years, the last two or three years, Scotland has started missing some of those targets. And so we were really, really keen to take the uh, this opportunity, make the most of it and start pushing uh, the government beyond its comfort zone a wee bit and making sure that we're, we're taking the most ambitious approach that we can. And the, the, the need to transform our building stock is, is obviously one of, the, one of the critical parts of that. So uh, when this, this opportunity emerged to, uh, to have the, the first ever green ministers within any government within the UK, uh, we, we jumped at it and I was really, really keen to uh, to take on the 
the really difficult, tricky challenge uh, and long-term challenge of the, the heat and buildings agenda, uh, but also active travel. Uh, and on the, the social justice side, tenants' rights I will also cover. So we'll be reintroducing uh, a system of rent controls uh, and, and a wider package of, of protection for tenants. So it's um, it's an exciting moment yeah. of opportunity. Less than six months in still, uh, but I think we're, we're making good progress and really keen to talk to you today about the um, the first part of that, the zero carbon buildings uh, agenda, which yeah. uh, is, is taking up a huge amount of my time already. Well, I mean, first of all, I think I think that's great, and I think um, I think the system of government in, in Scotland certainly lends itself more to a collaborative approach, um, which is which is interesting. I think it's it's great that uh, Scotland has a minister for zero carbon buildings. I think that's incredibly progressive. I, I'd spoken to somebody earlier on today um, who who was you know uh, really taken aback that 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 that. Um, uh, that portfolio existed, but I think it is incredibly progressive. I, I think we here in this forum, and we've been doing this podcast now for about six months, and I think we we believe, and I think you probably would agree with us, that there's an urgency around decarbonisation. There's certainly an urgency around climate change and how we decarbonise our homes and how we we meet our objectives, and not just environmentally, but socially as well through that that just transition. So we, we have to accelerate, um, we feel, our plans at national level to, to do that. Um, what has been, in terms of taking it back to the nuts and bolts about some of the policies that the Scottish Government has, has put in place prior to you coming on, 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 on board as a minister, what's the Scottish Government's position on this? And, and we'd like to, to, I'd like to talk, if possible, Patrick, about some of the policies that, that exist just now, which might be familiar to people who, who like myself, but maybe uh, not to the general public, uh, about things like the heat and building strategy, about each, in particular each. I think each is an interesting uh, way in which social housing can be the vanguard for improving the overall housing stock and things like LHEs. So the, the kind of levers or the policies that you're putting in place that will hopefully help us transition uh, to a, a decarbonised building stock. Yeah, so, I mean, to, to say something about where Scotland's been up until this point, uh, I think there has been a degree of ambition, uh, probably not enough, that's fair to say. Uh, and in fact, the, the one time the Scottish budget fell, was, was blocked by Parliament, uh, was over uh, the, the failure of the time of the, the, the government to adopt a, a really ambitious uh, approach to uh, area-based delivery on, on energy efficiency. That's, yeah. that's a good few years ago now. Yeah. Uh, and we, we've been pushing ever since then to, to go further. And that, the government, you know, although that was a, a, a bit of a, a moment of conflict, I think some of what we were arguing for at the time was borne out uh, and the government did eventually uh, go in the direction that we'd been pushing for. Um, there's still been, uh, you know, within the fuel poverty agenda, there's still been quite a lot of focus over the years, way back since 99, of just, you know, install people with, with new gas boilers, you know, not really taking energy efficiency as the primary element of, of cutting people's costs uh, and certainly not enough on, on looking at um, things like heat networks some of the some of the technologies that are you know hardly rocket science stuff that a lot of other countries have been way ahead of us on uh, but Scotland hasn't really uh, looked at the potential for that so where we're at now is a recognition finally that we cannot meet our climate targets. There is no path to meeting our climate targets that doesn't involve uh, much more ambition on, on this agenda. 
So by the end of this decade, by 2030, uh, we need to see about a million homes converted to zero emission heating systems. Uh, we need to see a much bigger emphasis on energy efficiency. And, and you know, for some of those zero emission heating systems, you need the energy efficiency alongside. And I think that's one of the things that's been recognized as a difference between the heat in buildings strategy that we've published uh, and the heat and buildings strategy that the UK government has published. No one's quite sure why one of them is N and the other one is AN. I don't think it's a great ideological schism in, in the words, but I think that the UK strategy has been criticised in some quarters for not placing enough emphasis on, on energy efficiency. Um, and I think both governments have got you know, some willingness to look at things like hydrogen in the gas network, but with a, a pinch of salt in there, there's, there's, a, there's a, a wee degree of, of, of scepticism that that will deliver everything that the uh, the industry kind of, the, some of the vested interests that suggest that it might. So if we're going to be replacing uh, fossil fuel boilers, you know, gas boilers with heat pumps, heat networks, if those are going to be some of the dominant new technologies that we're going to use, uh, you absolutely have to have that, that level of, of energy efficiency and, and good quality building fabric to, to accompany that. So that's the scale of what we need to achieve in this decade. And you're, you're right, there are, there are a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on delivery at a local level, whether that's through uh, the, the local uh, energy efficiency uh, strategies, the uh, I drown in acronyms these days, the, the, uh, the, the LHEs and the, uh, the, 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 the support that we need to give to, to local uh, social housing land social landlords as well. You, you you mentioned that, and I think social landlords have got a huge opportunity to give leadership. And if we get that right and we we support them to do it, that in itself will give confidence to the supply chain, uh, which will in turn reduce costs and help make sure that we're skilling people up so that there's more capacity to do that same work beyond the social housing sector. So there's a real opportunity to give leadership there. But at the same time, we as the Scottish government need to recognise that we're asking a lot of the social housing sector. We're asking a lot of them in delivery of new homes for, for social rent, uh, delivery of new homes for social rent, including in areas that are more expensive to build. Uh, and, you know, in, in areas where, for example, a lot of housing has been crowded out by short term letting and, and second homes and so on. So there are real challenges in providing the homes that people just need to live in at the same time as raising the performance of those, those new build properties and retrofitting the existing stock. And I, I am not willing to, to say that, you know, that, that we want to pursue that, uh, that zero carbon agenda at the expense of providing the homes that Scotland needs. We need to find a way to do both. And that means that we're going to have to find new ways to reduce the cost uh, you know, things like, you know, okay, it's a little bit speculative now, but one of the things in the, the cooperation agreement between the Greens and the government is to explore land value capture. And if we can have a mechanism for land value capture, that could be a new source of revenue to invest back in the built environment. Uh, and we're looking at that amongst many, many other options for how you finance this very expensive transition uh, and do it fairly. That's really interesting, Jeff. I think you wanted to come in there and just yeah. There's a couple of things. I, I mean, on that point about uh, about cost, it's it's. I think it's really interesting to to say that um, um, 
when you start looking at at, uh, at the likes of embodied carbon calculation, for instance, you can find that some of the decisions that you end up taking um, to reduce embodied carbon are also compatible with cost capital cost reduction. Um, whether that's to do with simple stuff like um, like reducing the amount of concrete you use, the re reducing the amount of excavation you're doing. Um, there's a project uh, we featured in our new issue, which I keep on going on about in the podcast, so apologies, um, a 41-unit social housing development with a 9 million euro budget where 450,000 euro of the project budget was on uh, trucking away soil that was excavated from the site, you know. Uh, so uh, with a big emb embodied carbon consequence as well um but i'm just really heartened to hear that you're you're um placing energy efficiency and affordability uh central in your plans because um i watched newsnight last night and uh you guys are going to need to keep the swear jar the tory swear jar at the ready probably but there were two you're allowed in this one, instance <laughs> was the, there was a peter lily um uh tory up here um and a former conservative minister uh who's in the uh uh, the, the NGO sector now, um, uh, and uh, Caroline Lucas, indeed, uh, uh, were on. And the thing that really left me despondent uh, from watching that piece was um, that the discussion, which is about net, net zero, um, was very much focused on, I mean, apart from the stuff on tracking, which is just mind-boggling at this stage, to, to be even having that discussion, um, there was an awful lot of focus just on renewables, which are, of course, very important, um, uh, there was no real consideration around energy efficiency and affordability. And I'm just very concerned in terms of trying to get, you know, looking where, where we're at now with energy prices uh, this winter um, and looking at the, the cost of living crisis, any strategy that, that, that you know, uh, an approach to decarbonization that doesn't take account of um, the, the ability of the, you know, or the impact of those decisions on the life of the uh, the lives of the people, you know, in living in those buildings or using that energy, I would be gravely worried about. So uh, it's it's reassuring. I mean, you can you know you, uh, hear you saying, and I I guess where I'm going with this is um, there is a sense, then a coherent sense in in your in your thinking from a government perspective that you are trying not just to tackle decarbonization, but you're trying to go for a, a flavor or an approach to decarbonization that's kind of um, people-centered and thinking about uh, about affordability and, and, and long-term decarbonization that reduces uh, uh, running costs for people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I saw the same discussion on, on Newsnight. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, let's let's leave aside Peter Lilly and, and the, the, the net zero scrutiny group who, who really are just a a rebrand of the the climate deniers that have been on the the right wing of the Tory party for a long time. I, I don't think even within their own party they're taken particularly seriously uh, anymore. Uh, not not as not as badly as they were ten years ago, for example. Uh, but yeah, the the discussion between uh, Caroline, who who did mention energy efficiency, and and uh, the former minister um, Claire, who who kind of almost dismissively said. Uh, we need to do all these other things like decarbonizing industry and so yeah we we need to do all of it that's the point we need to do all of it uh, and it's it's not going to be enough to say that that we can leave aside the the energy efficiency stuff but look one of the one of the real problems with politics uh, and you know anybody who's who's even got the the slightest degree of of, of healthy cynicism about politics uh, will we'll acknowledge that it's a deeply imperfect process. One of the things that's imperfect about politics is that politicians, it's really easy for us to offer more of people, more of what people are used to. 
we'll build you a new road is a perfect example. Uh, or, you know, we'll, we'll give you a new gas boiler, give you more of what you're used to, or make it cheaper to have what you're used to. That's a really easy thing to offer, and it's an unchallenging thing to offer. Actually trying to convince people that there's a better way of meeting their needs than, than what they know already, that's a much more difficult thing. It's a hard sell. And I think, you know, if we if we look at how our energy system works at the moment, not just in terms of domestic energy and the the the, the horrific cost of living increases that people are looking at uh, living with already, but seeing getting getting much worse uh, in the months ahead. But how the whole energy system works and its relationship to our environmental life support system and the, the damage that's being done there, it's really, really clear that we can't just tweak that system uh, and have, have more of what people are used to. Uh, we're going to need to find ways to, to paint a picture of a, of a different kind of relationship to energy that has to be about using less of it. And it has to be about breaking that dependence on volatile prices like fossil fuels. Uh, and yeah, the, this notion that whether it's fracking or whether it's Campbell or any other source of, of increasing domestic production, you've got this bizarre argument from right-wing free marketeers, right-wing free marketeers almost pretending that this is about domestic farming. There's local production for local consumption. No, these are globally traded commodities, and the domestic price will always be set by those global uh, economic circumstances. I mean, unless you do nationalise the whole thing, and I don't think they're on the verge of doing that. So, you know, these are privatised, globally traded commodities. Our dependence on them is really, really bad for people in the here and now, just in terms of, of household finances and, and business running costs. But it's also clearly part of a fundamentally destructive uh, economic system as well. But the, the, I'm, I'm kind of going off on, on tangents all over the place here, but you know, the, the most important thing is to crack on with the work that we need doing. And we need to support people to do that as well. Doing that at a time when people are anxious about energy, again, is not easy. Uh, and the costs of a lot of the retrofit and uh, uh, and replacing heating systems uh, is not just about upfront capital costs. It's people asking themselves, how much is it going to cost me to run this in future? And looking at electricity prices as well as gas prices. So there's, there's a huge challenge here uh, to do this, some of which is about UK government powers, some of which a lot we can do here in Scotland, and a lot where we need to empower local communities, local government, uh, and things like local ownership of, of land and of property and of, uh, of, of energy systems could also do a lot to change those relationships and make the system work more for people. Yeah. Rachel, I think I mean, that was incredibly, I think that's really interesting there's lots i think for, for people who who can't see us there's lots of nodding heads here and in, in, in can hands but it's very impressive and, and and but rachel you want to come in on a specific point and then i'll ask a question if that's okay patrick yeah i mean there was so much that you were saying there patrick that i thought yes that and that and that but i think you know firstly when you said yes we need to do everything and that can start to feel incredibly overwhelming but also on the flip side of it is we've got quite a lot of problems that can be solved by doing these things properly so i think we don't like to use the term co-benefits we're talking about the benefits of doing this work and thinking about a solution to sort of fuel poverty and reducing our energy consumption that at the same time can tackle damp 
um, and poor standards of living and comfort and fuel poverty, um, I think is is the way that we should be approaching it. And I think it's really exciting that your role also encompasses tenants' rights because this really should start to be seen as a right of a person that lives in a property to live in a property that is comfortable, it's good for their health and well-being, and it doesn't cost them absolutely loads to run. Um, I think the important thing that you were talking about is this idea of public engagement and storytelling and telling the right story and getting members of the public on board um, to convince them that actually you want your government, your taxpayers' money to be spent doing this rather than necessarily giving someone a £200 loan for their energy bills. Or you want to, maybe if you can afford it, to be able to do this to your home rather than a new kitchen. And how do you think we start to tell that sort of that better story? How do we bring people along for the ride? Is it about more information or is it about the way that we talk about um, the quality of our homes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the things that the new uh, National Energy Agency that uh, that we're going to establish in Scotland is going to do. It's going to take responsibility for a lot of the public engagement side of things. Uh, and, you know, in the first instance, that might just be about answering people's basic questions uh, about, you know, what is a heat pump? How do they work? Uh, it might be about pointing people in the right direction for a bit of support for the various grant and loan schemes that we have uh, for, for doing uh, you know, energy efficiency work and so on. But I think long term, it's also about saying, how is this change going to benefit my community, my family? You know, th- things like, um, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about how you might decarbonize the, the heating systems across a whole community, we're also at the same time thinking about how might you decarbonize the transport systems in that in that community. And although I'm always going to be keen for more people to have a bike than a car. A lot of people will still have cars and they're going to want to plug them in instead of take them to the, to the petrol pumps. Now, that in itself requires a, an approach to re-engineering the electricity grid for those, those communities as well. So we need to take a, a, a bit of a kind of place-based approach to how all of these changes are going to fit together. And it talks uh, a little bit as well to the economic opportunities. There, there is a multi-decade program of work ahead of us uh, to get this job done. That means there are not just jobs to be had, there are lifelong careers to be had in doing this work in Scotland. We want those to be rewarding careers. Uh, we want you know, local contractors uh, you know, who you know, might have some, some choice about what skills they're going to invest in or what kind of people they're going to hire. We want them to see that because the Scottish government is committed to taking a regulatory approach, making sure that we're we're giving competence to the supply chain. We want them to see that there is a real opportunity for them to go into this area of work uh, and to and to see that it's a it's a long-term bet for them. And it connects as well to the points you were making about uh, about materials, the embodied carbon side of things. If we want to use more Scottish timber, and we can, you know, there's there's kind of inertia a little bit in the uh, in the construction industry about precisely what standards uh, are, are usable for construction. Uh, but it's it, there's, there's not a technical barrier to using more Scottish timber. If we want to do that and do it in a way that's also consistent with having uh, healthy, diverse ecosystems, healthy uh, re- regeneration of biodiversity in the places that timber is coming from, rather than just seeing it as a monoculture crop, there are so many aspects 
of how this is about the future of Scotland. It's about what kind of country we want to live in. It's not just about, you know, how many centimetres of, of insulation is in your loft. It's it's about so much richer a conversation uh, about how are we going to meet those those climate targets, how are we can, going to contribute to the, the safety of our life support system globally, but also what kind of Scotland does that build? That's really interesting. I want to bring Dan in, but but just, just after Dan, I'd, I'd be quite keen to pick up uh, Patrick in terms of, I mean, these, these are great, but some of the initiatives and how we take, how local government might be best placed to take some of these things forward. But Dan, you wanted to come in there just now, yeah? Yeah, yeah. well, it's your role in uh, looking out for tenants, presumably. You know, when we think about the landlords, and I don't mean like, will somebody think of the landlords? Because they seem to be quite well catered to broadly. Uh, you mentioned place-based like regeneration or development. And one of the the inhibitors of progress can often be landlords because like if you're talking in terms of energy efficiency, like it's a big investment for people. And the funds broadly, certainly south of the border, they're not necessarily available in the same way they might be above. Um, and how do we encourage landlords to uh, get involved? Because, you know, tenants in England in particular, uh, you know, we're, we're inculcated in a culture where you just suck it up. You're not allowed blue tack on the walls. Never mind to live in a home which is comfortable, warm or not humid to the point of being damp and black molded. Uh, like, what do we do? Because I'm, I'm really curious as to how taking on all these roles together suggests a progressive, holistic approach, which I've rarely seen even contemplated elsewhere. And again, it's a massive job. <laughs> what are you doing about it? <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, it, it's another of those "how do you solve all the things" kind of questions, and um, the the thing about landlords, first of all, we really do want to encourage good, responsible landlords to stay in the sector, uh, and we really want to deter the the more exploitative, uh, unethical landlords. Um, and and having an approach to regulation, both in terms of tenants' rights and in terms of investment in properties. Having an approach that requires that investment, uh, but which attracts the good landlords and deters the bad ones, that's a tricky balancing act to, to strike. There's, there is a danger that if we got this wrong, we would only attract uh, the, the people who want to cut corners on the investment uh, and pass the costs on to their, their tenants uh, and, and actually you know, have, have those two who, who want to behave better, maybe thinking twice and, and maybe leaving the sector. So we want to make sure that we get that balance right. And some of it is absolutely about encouragement. Some of it is about regulation and compulsion. And we are going to bring forward regulations on uh, the whole building stock, but that will apply to the private rented sector a little bit earlier than, than owner occupiers, for example. Uh, and I think that's important because, you know, quite a lot of the you know, the, the private rented sector covers a, a wide range. There, there is really good quality housing in the private rented sector. There are also quite a lot of properties that are very poorly insulated, worse than the average, uh, and have outstanding disrepair issues as well. So we, we need to uh, take an approach that is going to close the gap between what people get in terms of their, their right to adequate housing. You know, very often when we talk about, uh, you know, intervening in the private rented sector, you get... Um, 
what what my my officials call A one P one issues. Uh, that's uh, the the property rights within human rights law. Uh, and yeah, if if you're going to intervene in in the way that somebody has a right to use their property, that's a that's a human rights issue. But so is the right to adequate housing. And a a property that is being rented out as somebody's home, it's one person's property, but it's the other person's home. And both of those rights matter. And right at the moment, we do have that out of balance. And we do have more of an emphasis on the interests of the person whose property it is uh, and less on the interests of the person whose home it is. So we, we need to rebalance that. And there's there's issues as well about about price, and you know we've seen, uh, you know, the the cost of housing, the price of housing going up and up and up and up relentlessly, to the extent that I think there's a real disconnect between what some older people remember of their experience of of getting their first place to live, whether as a tenant or as an owner, and the actual lived experience, the reality of what younger people are experiencing at the moment. Um, I, I read a statistic the other day that said that uh, the average uh, house in the UK has increased in value in one year, in just one year, by more than the average uh, that young people earn in a year. Now, that, that's a massive continuation of this concentration of wealth uh, in fewer and fewer hands. But it also is a, is a reminder to me there is wealth locked up in these buildings, uh, and if we can unlock some of that uh, to invest in uh, in the, the 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 really really important work of bringing it up to standard, that doesn't mean that that people can't still be a landlord and and have that be a viable business for them, or or uh, you know to to provide that service at a reasonable cost. It just means that this vast uh, increase, this unearned wealth that's been locked up in those properties some of that needs to get unlocked and put to good use. Mm, that's, that's really interesting. And I think we've, we've, we probably want to ask you a question about, about, about that a wee, a wee bit later on, about how we finance some of the work and, and, and that. But one, one thing just to try and, and, and follow on, and this is one of my, probably my pet question is because I come from a local government background is, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, and I think it's, it's commendable that the, the holistic approach to what we're trying to do, the sustainability of the, and, and, and putting people um, uh, first at the at the at the heart of the of the transition. What, what what role I suppose? And and I ask this as a question in sharp contrast to some of the conversations we have with Bayes. And I, I think that conservative policy is is very much about a market led approach, a consumer choice approach. And I don't get that impression from the Scottish government. I think that's positive that the Scottish government feels there's a collective nature. Then perhaps that local authorities can can both. Um, change the dynamic of the market through um, ish and through some of the retrofit that, that will happen through there. But as well as LHEs, LHEs is a really interesting policy from the Scottish government that I think borrows from Denmark in terms of the zoning. So that strategic planning about how local authorities can actually change the dynamic of the market or or send signals to the market about specific heat networks and so on. What, what role do you think um, local authorities will play over the coming decade? Uh, hugely important. Uh, first of all, you're, you're right that we we have been working uh, with the the Danish government uh, to learn a bit about their experience, partly about these delivery models, but also about uh, things like heat networks and uh, and heat pumps and the the technologies that haven't been used very much in in this country. You know, if you if you think, for example, about much of of urban Scotland, uh, the the tenement blocks uh, that that huge number of people live in. I I live in a 
a pre-1919 tenement, like huge numbers of people in Glasgow. Uh, and even just thinking about the energy efficiency, uh, never mind zero emissions heating, a lot of these older blocks, you're only really going to find out what state they're in once you start ripping them apart to do the work. And, and doing that on a collective whole building basis is obviously going to be more efficient. And yet these are buildings with fragmented ownership, fragmented tenure. Uh, my, my block, I, I own my flat. Uh, there are uh, the, the, the factor, uh, which you know is, is still part of Scottish property law. It's not so familiar as a, a model down south, but the factor is the local social landlord, uh, the local housing association. And so they still have some tenants in the block. Elsewhere in the building, there'll be private tenants as well because there'll be a property that was owner-occupied and then became a private land. And on the ground floor, because it's the main road, you've got shops and pubs and cafes and stuff, and they're all subject to different regulations. So you've got these mixed-use, mixed-owner, mixed-tenure buildings. Um, and trying to take a, a, a holistic kind of community-based approach to the energy performance of that building is difficult enough. And then you've got to think about the zero-emission heating systems. You're not going to have people hooking up an individual heat pump uh, to each individual individual flat on the third or the fourth floor of a tenement building. So heat networks are probably going to have a much bigger role to play in that kind of environment. So yet, clearly, the local authority and the local social landlords are going to have critical roles to play in creating that coordination, creating that area-based, community-based approach, and hopefully doing it in a way that that creates some kind of local buy-in, that it's not just something that is done on a piecemeal basis, uh, first of all, by the people who can afford it, and then later, grudgingly, by the people who are forced to do it, but something where the whole community has a sense of, of something being done collectively, something that we're collectively contributing to and collectively benefiting from. Uh, and yes, where social landlords can do that on a big scale with their own blocks, uh, like when we launched the heat and building strategy that morning, I went to visit um, a project in, in North Glasgow where yeah. North Glasgow uh, homes have got uh, six tower blocks and they put a bank of heat pumps onto the, the roof of each of these six tower blocks, servicing the whole buildings. Uh, and so the tenants haven't had too much in the way of disruption because it's it's all been happening kind of out with their own homes, except for that last little bit where you're, uh, you're connecting the individual uh, flat up to the, to the heat network. But they've got controllable heat because it's not just a single heat pump uh, for a single property. It's, it's, a, it's a network, so it means it's more responsive and controllable for them. They've seen some of those 60% cuts in their, their heating bills as a result. Uh, and the, the buildings have been done with, with other improvements like energy efficiency and fire safety and so on at the same time. So it feels like this is a almost a refreshed building yeah. that they're living in. Um, so if, where a social landlord is able to do that and take that kind of approach out into the wider community, yeah. to a mixed tenure uh, community, uh, where a local authority can achieve that kind of buy-in and that kind of collective approach, that's going to be much more powerful, especially, as I say, in these denser urban uh, parts of, uh, of our community. Yeah, I just want to bring Rachel in because Rachel's got a question. But before I do that, David Fallow, who's a project manager in that North Glasgow home, is going to be so chuffed because he listens to this podcast all the time, and and he's <laughs> been on about this project with me. So, David, if you're listening out there, that's your that's your moment of fame. Rachel, you had the question. 
Yeah, I mean, I really like the whole conversation around that there are different scales that action needs to be taken and the idea that, you know, at that community level, then you're enabling action to happen where people are wanting it to happen, but they just need the support for it to happen. And then at the regulatory end, you're kind of pushing up the baseline and you're making sure that no one falls through the cracks that maybe doesn't necessarily want to take action sort of themselves. So, I mean, do you see that there's any scope for Scotland developing, you know, higher standards around both operational and embodied carbon, um, both regards to retrofit and new build? Is, is it something that, that you're thinking of pursuing at all? Yeah, we've, we've already taken some interim steps on, on new build standard and we're consulting on more substantial changes uh, to the new build uh, standard. We're, we're looking at, at raising standards across the board. That's that's probably in the first instance, uh, more in, in terms of the, the kind of issues that are currently covered uh, by building standards, but improving them. Looking at the, the embodied carbon side of things, I think there's more work to be done. Uh, I think if we were if we were to just try and, uh, and, and kind of crash ahead with with implementing first thoughts on that, uh, I think we might end up making some mistakes. So there is there is more work to be done, but we are exploring that. Uh, and I think over the next uh, year or so, you'll you'll see more coming out from the Scottish government on uh, on the way that we think that might go. Um, you know, the the embodied carbon stuff is is. It's a, it's a different way than, than most people have been encouraged to think about their buildings so far, including the construction industry itself. Uh, and, you know, that's in terms of, of repairability as well as, uh, you know, disposal, the end of life disposal. What, what happens to the, the, the material and how can it be reused or, or used differently? But there's, there's innovation happening. I mean, even even within things like the um, the, the sort of off-site construction uh, methods that are that are coming in and and, and uh, being being modernised now, you, you're seeing that reducing the costs of of delivering social housing at the moment. You, you're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of that uh, resulting in really high quality uh, and 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 flexible approaches to building. If we can systematise uh, some of the retrofit uh, work that needs to be done in a same in in a similar way that that modern methods of construction has systematized uh, construction of, of new build. That's a really interesting space for me because the, the, the scale of work that needs to be done on retrofit uh, is immense. And if, if we're left with having to do an individual bespoke job for every individual building based on its, its particular conditions, especially for some of the older and more traditional building styles, that's going to be really, really expensive. But if we can find ways to systematize that and reduce the cost without sacrificing the quality, that, that could be really exciting. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a really important reason why we need to consider embodied carbon, because having those systems in place that you can then you know, roll out on multiple dwellings, if you're not thinking about embodied carbon of that from the start, then five years down the line, that model is going to need to change and i think you know we've been regulating operational energy for more than 50 years now and we obviously still haven't got it right because we still need to retrofit all these buildings so part of me thinks that you know there's an urgency to start regulating embodied carbon because the regulation isn't going to be perfect when it's first introduced it's going to need time to develop and and i know that you know many local authorities we're talking to like particularly in london they themselves understand that they need to do some sort of upskilling in-house because we're all trying to get to grips with it um 
I guess part of it is learning from other places. And I know that France has got great regulation there. So um, yeah, I think that's there's some good opportunities in, in, in learning from other EU countries right now on that. Yeah, and I think Patricia... No, well, Sorry. listen, keep keep in touch with us on that because I, I think, you know, later this year, uh, you, you will hear more about the, the direction we're going to go on that. I think um, one of the, the points... Um, First of all, I think it's really interesting that the, the, the modern methods of construction and retrofit, and I agree. I think there's really something in there where we can we can standardise systems. So that's that's really interesting. A little shout out to Construction Scotland Innovation who've done some great work over COP, and and I think the especially things like cross laminated timber, um, I think is really interesting. But I, I think my question, one of the questions that we had put put earlier on, is around the just transition, and we, we spoke about. Uh, renewables and, and how certainly there's a blend of renewables and, and, and fabric improvements. And, and I guess the question that's an open one is what, what steps is the Scottish government taking to ensure that we don't, you know, negatively disorder, we don't displace those working in the fossil fuel industry. I think I read a figure that there's 70,000 gas engineers in the UK uh, and, and nor do we impact or negatively impact those people already in fuel poverty. What, what are the sorts of initiatives and, 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 and programmes that the Scottish Government put in place to ensure that, that the just transition is a just one? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hugely significant, especially for a, a country that has been a fossil fuel producer. Uh, and I think, you know, in many ways, the, the challenges uh, at that that fossil fuel production end uh, of the economy are, are a bit trickier uh, in relation to you know making sure that not just individuals but whole communities that have been dependent on the oil and gas industry see renewables and other new sustainable industries as not just you know something that might be there but something they can have confidence in something they can feel good about their their community's future. Um, those those are really really huge challenges. I think in terms of you know stuff like heating engineers, it's it's probably a little bit easier to if we give confidence that the government is serious about uh, implementing this schedule of regulations, achieving this million homes by 2030 and carrying on through to 2045 and beyond. If we can give that the confidence that that work is going to be done, I think a great many uh, of those smaller businesses, a lot of them you know small contractors or uh, freelancers or, or family businesses uh, will find it uh, relatively easy to adapt. We're working with colleagues who, who are on the skills side, the education and skills side, uh, to try and make sure that we're, we're in touch with the, the colleges, that we're in touch with training providers to, to make sure that we identify the needs there. Um, right now, for example, we've got a few thousand zero emission heating systems getting installed a year in Scotland. We need to be at hundreds of thousands a year by the latter half of this decade. Uh, that's a that's a really dramatic increase, and that means supply chain and it means people. It means skills. Uh, so we're we're really aware that if we if we didn't address that, that would be a huge risk mm -hmm. uh, in terms of of uh, not just not just failing to meet the target, but failing to reduce the costs. Yeah. Because if, if we don't do that then it's going to remain very, very expensive to install yeah. these systems just because the capacity won't be there. And just before I bring Jeff in, that's a really interesting point because uh, conversely, the heat and building strategy in, in, in from Bayes is, is re really small in terms of its overall objectives. And I could be wrong here, but I think the heat and building strategy targets around 90,000 units for uh, low carbon heat, heat systems over the next three years. And what you're saying that's really interesting is you as a government are giving clear signals to the market of how they move on, retrain, reskill, 
and and allow us to 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 undertake this just transition. And interestingly, that you know that that you would expect a, a mark a, a government who uh, I think everyone would agree is is, is market focused in terms of its delivery not to have those signals in. That's a really interesting point. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it connects to some of these kind of deeper sort of political ideological questions. But I, I, my my guess is, and it's, it's obviously not for me to tell the UK how they should a- achieve their their policy objectives. My my guess is that they will at some point have to face the fact that you're not going to get progress on this agenda without regulation uh, and without you know whether it's whether it's around trigger points like change of of use or change of tenure or occupation uh sale of of properties new tenancies uh whether it's taking a, a more area based kind of zoned approach there, there's going to have to be something uh, a, a little bit like that but the, you you have this you have this notion of choice and freedom which most people instinctively want to have some control over their lives uh you know that like that like that uh, you know, horribly successful slogan, take back control, right? It was, it was a successful slogan because people recognize that they want some control of their lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the market doesn't always deliver that. Right now, we've got a free market approach to, to the private rented sector, for example. Uh, and, you know, it's it's resulted in house price inflation. It's resulted in, uh, you know, declining in the social housing stock. So there's huge swathes of people for whom owner occupation is unaffordable, social housing is unavail- unavailable, and the private rented sector is the only choice they've got. That's that's Hobson's choice. That's no real choice. Uh, and when uh, you know people's uh, incomes, you know, often precarious, but even even if you've got a stable income, not keeping pace with the uh, the price of the the private rented sector, that again isn't giving people choice. So. The, 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 the kind of free market mentality doesn't always even deliver what it says it'll deliver, uh, which is giving people choice and control in their lives. Yeah. So if we want to do that, uh, we need to think about the whole system approach uh, and, you know, not just not just how much does it cost to get into a property and, and yeah. uh, you know, what, what, the, what the, the, the mortgage or the, the, the rent is and what the barriers are to that, but also how is it to live there? Yeah. How is it financially, socially, and in health terms to, to live in a property? And uh, yeah, unless we take a, a different approach to energy issues, when we're not going to be answering those questions at all. Yeah. Well, I think your your the point you raise about choice is a really interesting one because choice broadly, certainly in the 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 property or housing market, is a bit of a fallacy. Like you might be able to choose where you want to live to an extent, depending on how much money you have available to you. I don't know if you saw Kirsty Allsop's tweet the other day about how kids should <laughs> curb up Netflix subscriptions and avocado toast. When you're looking at trying to raise, I don't know, between 50 and 70 grand, since I managed to claw my way onto the bottom rung of the property ladder, prices have risen significantly. Hmm. What this really requires is like a, a full-throated, wholehearted approach to collective action of some sort or other. So like enabling people to come together to make these changes, galvanizing like disparate individualized groups of people. I think what you described about the the tenement setup is really interesting. Uh because like there's there's a set of competing interests. I mean, there's competing interests everywhere. I mean, we alluded to hydrogen and the, the intimated gas sector sitting just behind it. Uh like how do we galvanize people? How do we foster conditions whereby collective action 
is viable. And that's what I was sort of trying to get at earlier, because it's really interesting that all of this is wrapped up within a single role for you. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I, I was going to say I own my own house, but I own a massive debt on a flat. <laughs> it's a leasehold flat. Jesus wept. Uh, but there's like, I'm in an incredibly privileged position, even there. Like it's preposterous. Like uh, I live in this block, which isn't too dissimilar to tenements, whereby if I wanted to retrofit my flat, it's going to be unbelievably difficult to do so. So, I mean, how do we foster conditions whereby people are going to be able to do this? Like I'm galvanizing a group of residents and my building manager and the freeholder who's some lord somewhere uh, who he's at least reachable. He's not entirely remote, uh, but like, yeah, you seem to, you seem to be thinking about it. And what you said about land wealth uh, taxing, that was interesting as well because of the, the implications that that has further down the line. Anyway. Yeah. Collective action. Yeah. How are you going to do it? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's, there's any great, coincidence really in the fact that some of the countries that have made more progress on this and do have a, uh, a the, the approach to, to energy issues that we're that we're striving for here also have more decentralized land ownership and more common land ownership uh, more of a, a, an approach to, to collective land ownership and and, and more local decision making as well uh, you know in, in this country we, my my view is we don't really have local government in this country we have big regional service delivery agencies uh, that don't really have the freedom to govern. Uh, whereas in a lot of the Scandinavian countries, um, you know, the, the, the community is able to say, well, we, we saw that we had a problem. And so we sat down and we discussed the problem. We decided on a solution and now we don't have the problem anymore. You know, you, okay, maybe I'm being a bit overly simplistic there, but you, you have the sense of agency at a community level, the sense of of some control and some some ability to uh, to make decisions, and some of that is about political power, and some of it is about ownership, and they they go together. So yeah, there's we're starting from a <laughs> from an an imperfect starting point. Mm. Um, I think there's there's scope, and the energy agency that we're setting up is is going to explore this with local authorities as well. There is scope for more public ownership of of energy systems whether that's around local authorities using publicly owned land, using public buildings, uh, you know, generating their own energy uh, and, and having a locally owned energy company, which itself could uh, become a, an energy supplier to, to a local community. The, some of the, the discussion that we've had previously around a publicly owned energy company has been purely about the retail side. I think what we've seen in the last couple of years in the, the energy retail market has, has shown that that would have been a huge risk to take uh, in, in that context. But ownership of energy infrastructure, having the, holding that at a community level uh, could have real potential uh, and creating an asset that that people can can see as a, as a source of revenue for investment back into their own community. Uh, I, I think there's there's huge potential for that. But yeah, the, the, the scale of it uh, is, is daunting. Uh, and if people face a, a, a problem on this scale in an atomized way, as though I just have to solve this problem for me and my home in, in, in my little box in isolation from a community, that's too much. It's, it, and it's unreasonable. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's likely to result in, in inefficient attempts to, to solve the problem 
which are not going to be as effective as taking that community approach. Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to pretend that we have every answer on this. And it's going to be really difficult, I think, to to get yeah. that change of culture as well as the uh, the, the, the the change in, in what, where the economic opportunities lie. But there's there, there are many, many different ways that we can look at financing this, and we're actively exploring the, the widest range of options there. Well, well, that's something I know Jeff wants a quick question, but that we're probably running out of time. I know that you probably one of the things uh, that that I'd like to ask, and, and and maybe Jeff can come in just before that, but is around financing. So, Jeff, what was your question there? Sorry, it was just. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of uh, of reference to European experiences, which are fantastic, mm. and, and and have that outward looking approach, which doesn't always occur on other parts of of this island. Uh, you know. Um, uh, I, what you mean, Jeff. So I notice um, after the Brexit referendum vote happened um, and um, um, before Brexit was completed, I uh, made contact with each of the devolved assemblies um, uh, in the UK to ask whether they were intending to comply with the nearly zero energy building requirement or not. And the Scottish government approach at that time, obviously things may have changed given the, given the flavour of Brexit you got. Uh, the Scottish government and the Welsh government both, both gave very positive uh, responses in that regard. I got a beautifully constructed nothing burger out of, uh, out of Whitehall. It was just, it was just, I mean, you had to stand back and admire the just the, the artfulness of, 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 the artful way of saying absolutely nothing, you know, uh, <laughs> like an Escher drawing, you know. Um, but um, nonetheless, uh, now that Brexit has happened, and now that there's all these um, these I suppose, unresolved questions lingering in places like Scotland around, you know, the future direction that Scotland may end up taking um, politically, uh, you know, uh, regarding independence and regarding the union and so on, um, and given the risk that you have with the UK diverging from the European regulations now potentially, um, there is a risk, I suppose. Uh, as the UK, as the EU progresses on on you know moving away from nearly zero energy building to zero energy buildings and and uh, in, in rebuild and retrofit um, of the, of the UK becoming a kind of a dumping ground for the kind of stuff that can't be sold elsewhere in the EU. I mean, maybe that'll be solved by the trade barriers. <laughs> uh, maybe it'll be too hard to export stuff into the UK. To, so there's a one way of fulfilling that of preventing that. But um, is there? Does it make sense, and is it a consideration for the, for for you in your role, uh, Patrick, uh, as minister, to have one eye at least on the European policy to, to to think about how aligned from a regulatory perspective Scottish policy can be with the European policy, even with uh, neighbouring countries like Ireland that have very similar, you know, um, climate housing typologies, integrated supply chains to an extent. Are there opportunities yeah. to try and Collaborate, foster trade, um, and, uh, the, and and stop Scotland becoming unhitched from the rest of Europe. Uh, yeah, there are, and there's there's a, a very clear commitment from the Scottish government to try and stay aligned as much as we can. Uh, and you know, from from our point of view, I'm I'm not going to hide the fact that we see Scotland's future as being an independent country rejoining the European Union. But whether that happens or not. Uh, there's uh, there's a there's a real opportunity to make sure that we stay aligned with the highest possible standards of uh, of, uh, of of regulation and energy performance wherever they're appropriate. There might be some exceptions where it's not, but that's that's the the general direction that we that we do want to take. There are big problems to, to achieving that, not least the the Internal Market Act that the UK government has passed, uh, which impacted on devolved competence uh, and they they 
passed it against our explicit objections, which is the opposite of the way the Scotland Act is supposed to work. But yeah, there's a there's a danger that we're getting into uh, <laughs> an area of, of politics there that uh, is hugely important, but um, uh, yeah. it, it is, is probably not going to have long-term solutions until we put that back to the Scottish people. Um, yeah. Not every referendum is a bad referendum. Right. <laughs> well, Patrick, we, we really appreciate your time. I mean, I, I think our time is up. And, and, and just again, thank you for coming on. I think that the, the accessibility of Scottish politicians is something that I think others can take a, a, a lead on. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the policies that, that Scotland are developing hopefully will, will go a long way to mitigating some of the issues that we have. So, Patrick, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.